Today is President's Day, and it's President's Day because of its proximity to the birthdays of two presidents, two of our greatest presidents. Last Monday, the 12th, was the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. And this Thursday, is the, the 22nd, is the birthday of George Washington. And as, as I was thinking about these two men, I was thinking a word that I would use to describe both of them is noble. These were two noble men. And it got me curious about that word. And so that's my Dharma talk tonight. What does it mean to be noble? What does it mean to live a noble life? And I'll actually begin with a, a story about George Washington having to do with the town where I grew up. I grew up in a town in Windsor, New York. It's outside of the city of Newburgh on the Hudson River. It's about 60 miles north of New York City. A lot of revolutionary history in that part of the country. And so all kinds of memorials and landmarks, this sort of thing. So in the town where I grew up, that was actually the last encampment of the Continental Army. After the hostilities of the, of the Revolutionary War had finished, when they were negotiating the treaty, this is, where the, this is where the army was camped. And there was a building up on the hill called the Temple, and this is where George Washington and his generals would meet sometimes. Um, the original building's not there. They, they built a, a replica there. And in fact, the, the middle school I attended was called Temple Hill School. It was only about a few hundred yards from this hill. Um, so the story goes that one day in this temple, Washington generals have been talking among themselves, and they came to Washington and they said, Look, General Washington, we all love you. We think the world of you. This whole country loves you. If you want to make yourself king right now, we will not stand in your way. We will totally support you becoming king of this new country. And to his credit, Washington said, no, that's not what we fought for. We fought to have a democracy. We're going to have a democracy. And so there's actually a sign when you drive into my town, welcome to New Windsor, where Washington refused the crown. And so that, that's a particularly noble act. We, we don't know for sure whether that story happened, but it, it would be in, in keeping with Washington's character, certainly. So as I was thinking about the word noble, it occurred to me, in Buddhism, you know, of course, in the Buddha's first sermon, he talked about these four central truths, and we call them the four noble truths. And, and the fourth of them is that there's this eightfold path, which we call the noble eightfold path. So in both cases, we're using this curious word again, noble. And so that got me particularly curious. What does noble mean, and what does it mean to live a noble life? And so, a few different ways I'm going to look at this. The first actually involves, strangely enough, the science of chemistry. You may remember from your distant past this thing called the periodic table of the elements. Arguably the, the most important chart in all of chemistry, in, in all of the sciences. On the, all the way on the left, on the right side of that chart, Column 8A 
there are these gases, helium, neon, argon, krypton, and these are called the noble gases. So again, this word, why are they called the noble gases? Well, most of the other elements on the periodic table are highly reactive. Some of them are explosively reactive. And, and certainly, even the ones that don't, don't give immediate explosions, they, it's very easy to create conditions in which they're going to have reactions. The noble gases, under ordinary conditions, don't react at all. Now, we can create extra special lab conditions and force them to, to react, but under general circumstances, they don't react at all. And so I think that's a fascinating metaphor and one way to think about what it means to be noble. Someone who's noble is not reacting. Someone who's noble is is staying more steady, staying equanimous in the face of changes in life. You know, someone who can hold space and be a witness for what's happening rather than getting sucked into all the drama of what is happening. And so, of course, to be that way to really be able to be equanimous in the face of what life hands us. First of all, we'd need excellent boundaries, and we'd also need a large emotional capacity. And I've talked about capacity many times in Dharma talks, Um, but both of those would really be necessary. So those are important ingredients for what it means to be noble. I'll say in passing that it's unusual. If you think about what were what were the conventional expectations for men, certainly a hundred years ago, and to some extent they're they're still around today, you know, and it I would call it kind of a a parody or a a um a travesty of nobility. So in other words, the the, the very traditional man is supposed to be unfeeling, you know. You can say anything and he's unfeeling. He doesn't have a reaction, you know. Um, you know, never cries, all this sort of thing. But of course, it's usually not accomplished by nobility. It's usually accomplished by denying vulnerability, pressing down feelings. You know, I'm not going to feel that. I'm going to repress that, you know, that sort of thing. So it's very much a numbed out, unfeeling state. And that's not what nobility is, you know. True nobility, to be part of being a, a noble person, is I'm deeply in touch with my vulnerability. I feel my emotions fully, you know. I do all that, yet I also have the capacity to remain calm and equanimous in the face of whatever life is handing to me. So it's a very high ideal. Another metaphor I'm going to use is derives from a story from the Christian Bible. And so this is from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this was actually the reading on Ash Wednesday. So last Wednesday. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give alms, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. Truly, I say to you, they already have their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they already have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for all their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they already have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. And so there's there's a lot that's striking about that. Certainly that that refrain, you know, they already have that their reward. If you if you do something for praise and attention, well then you get the praise and attention, you know, but that's all you're gonna get from it. You know, there's no spiritual benefit that comes from it. So I realize, of course, that like many passages in the Christian Bible, that one is kind of heavily predicated on the existence of a, a personal God, a, a father out there. If that's not your belief system, I'm going to reframe it in terms of archetypal psychology. When we act out in virtue for the sake of attention, for the sake of look at me, how good I am, essentially we're feeding our pain. We're making our pain stronger because we're feeding it. You know, we're feeding the places that hold stories of insecurity, that sort of thing. The best motivation to have for virtue is that I act in virtue because by acting in virtue, it aligns me with my deeper self. Every time I act in virtue, I align myself with my deeper self. And that is, as it were, the reward in secret, the fact that I'm a little bit closer to my deeper self every time I act in virtue, you know. And so the the New Testament here, it almost, almost recognizes the easy temptation of, you know, because we're we're kind of apt to want to do things for attention, you know. So it it makes the point, you know, like really go out of your way to do this stuff in secret. When you're going to pray, shut the door, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, you know, and it raises an interesting question. At any moment when we're acting in virtue, what is our motivation? Are we truly acting to be seen? Are we Are we... Is it truly selfless? You know, what's going on there? I'll share a story also that this is a story last Wednesday. The, that was the, the reading. And then the priest gave a short homily and he told this story. And I share it only because it, it touched the priest, but it also really touched me in a way. Um, the priest had said that the day before, so that would have been Mardi Gras, he went out for a big breakfast with a friend and they were at a diner somewhere having a big breakfast and a conversation. And he could see the other booths and he noticed this this young man who was very well dressed and assumed that, you know, he must be a business person or something. You know, he was eating his breakfast and playing with his phone. And then at another point, 
an older couple came in and they were really struggling to walk and they were seated in the, the booth adjacent to the young man. So at a certain point, the young man finishes his meal. He gets up and leaves. And then the old couple is eating their meal. Well, when they finish, they ask for the bill. And the waitress comes over and tells them, that young man paid for your bill. And of course, they were, they were just delighted. They, were, they had tears of gratitude. And in fact, the priest telling the story was, had said he was brought to tears by it in many ways. Just the selflessness of, you know, that that young man paid, you know, didn't even know these old people, paid for their breakfast, you know. Um, And there is something very noble about that. And so it's interesting to think about what is our motivation and why do we, why do we, do good things in the world? Why do we act with virtue? And I'm going to share a somewhat more challenging passage. This is from T.S. Eliot. So this is from the Four Quartets, and he's, he's describing a place where someone is talking about all the things that happen in old age. So he says, The rending pain of reenactment of all that you've been done and been the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done or done to others' harms, which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then fools' approval stings and honor stains, from wrong to wrong the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. And so this whole idea that as we get older, we'll look back, And we'll see times when, you know, I really thought I was doing the right thing. I was going out there. I was being virtuous, you know. And then we realize later when we look back, wow, I was actually harming people during that, you know. And there's something humbling about that, you know. There's there's certainly, you know, how can I say, it certainly places a higher priority on being open to feedback, you know, and this is, this is one of the lessons I took. Some of you know, I was in this group for, called Kaf for years. And one of the, the Kaf teachings is if I'm a spiritual person, I always have to be open to feedback. You know, I always have to be feeling into, you know, how, how are my words landing? How are my actions landing? You know, if someone wants to give me feedback, I have to be open to that. Um, You know, and it's it's an interesting question when we're when we think we're being virtuous and when we're at our most self-righteous. How open would we be to feedback if someone had feedback for us, you know? And I, I love the the end of that passage where he talks about the exasperated spirit proceeds from wrong to wrong unless it can can be in that refining fire which essentially is a kind of way of talking about the Tao. The more that we're in sync with that deep rhythm of ourself, the less we're, we're playing the head game of what's right and what's wrong. Another aspect of nobility is abundance. To be noble is to act from a place of inner abundance. 
you know, so tremendous generosity, you know, the, the wonderful phrase from Ignatius of Loyola, to give and not count the cost, that's very noble. Um, to forgive is very noble, you know. And really, you know, to be in this place of abundance means that if someone comes at me with, with pettiness, you know, treating me in a petty kind of way, to be noble is not to let myself be dragged down by somebody else's energy. To be noble means I'm going to respond in a noble way to their pettiness, you know. Which again is a, is a hard thing to do, it's a particularly hard thing to do if we're triggered, you know, this sort of thing. Um, yeah, but so important to have that sense of inner abundance. And similarly, you know, some, sometimes when we're, we're not feeling so abundant, it's because we need, I feel I need attention, I need approval, I need respect, I need affection, you know, these sorts of things. But the truth is, the more we are in the practice of giving ourselves those things, the more I can give myself healthy attention, acceptance, approval, affection, the less I find myself hungry to get those things from the outside. So again, all of that contributes to inner abundance. So I'm going to return to Buddhism now and return to this question of why the word noble is attached to the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path. And I think ultimately the word noble has roots, ironically, in the Buddhist idea of anatta, or no self. And this is, this I talked about a little about this, this uh, last week or the week before. So the Buddhist idea is that any being in creation, you could look at any piece of furniture in your room, it doesn't have existence on its own because any piece of furniture was made by somebody, you know, so it's connected to all those people and it was transported by people. So it's connected to those people. And then all those people had to eat. So then there was all, all the people who grew food for those people, you know, and on and on and on. We, we can trace it back and back. And essentially any object is created, is, is interconnected with all living things, with all things on earth, you know. And similarly, any one of us, you know, I have this illusion that I am Mike alone by myself. But really what I am is the sum total of all the relationships I've ever been in, all the conversations I've ever been in, the books that I've read, the lectures that I've heard, all the ideas that have come into me, all the emotions I've experienced and emotional connections I've experienced, all that has shaped who I am, you know. And so there's a profound way, and then, you know, to say nothing of the food that I eat and the people that grow that, you know, there's a profound way that we're all connected to each other. And in fact, Buddhism says that the the worldview where I'm looking at myself as myself alone is actually an illusion, and that the only reality is the reality that we're all in interconnection with one another. The Buddha used an image in the Lotus Sutra called the net of Indra. And in the net of Indra, it's like a, like a mesh net. And every time two strings cross, there's a diamond. 
and every diamond reflects the whole of the net. And we are like diamonds on the net of Indra. And all of us are in some ways impacted by everyone else, you know, and we impact everyone else. And so to be noble is to live that way, to live with a sense of deep responsibility toward my interconnection with all beings, you know. From Buddhist point of view, to be noble means I'm not indulging my illusion that I'm that I exist alone by myself and I can have whatever emotional state I want and I can indulge in whatever pleasure I want and it doesn't affect anyone else, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, to be noble is to be truly responsible for my impact on all beings and and aware that the more I walk my own path, the more I will have to offer for all human beings, you know. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. There's the quote sheet. And so at the top of the quote sheet, I have the passage again from the, the Christian Bible that you can read if you like, from... The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Therefore the sage produces without possessing, acts without expectations, and accomplishes without abiding in her accomplishments. It is precisely because she does not abide in them that they never leave her. So a fascinating image of nobility there. Another quote. Hence when I am forced to name it, I call it the Tao. When I am forced to call to categorize it, I call it noble. Nobility entails transcendence. Transcendence entails going far. Going far entails return. Hence, Tao is noble, earth is noble, heaven is noble, earth is noble, and the human being is also noble. Within our realm, there are four nobilities, and the human being is one of them. Human beings follow the earth, earth follows heaven, Heaven follows the Tao, the Tao follows itself. And so just holding that ideal that it's it's our it's our potential, it's our destiny to be as noble as the earth, to be as noble as heaven, you know. Another quote from the Tao Te Ching. It is in this manner that the sage is always skilled at elevating people. Therefore she does not discard anyone. She is always skilled at helping things. Therefore, she does not discard anything. This is called the actualization of her luminosity. Hence, the good are the teachers of the not-so-good, and the not-so-good are the charges of the good. Not valuing your teacher nor loving your students, even if you are smart, you are gravely in error. This is called the essential subtlety. And so, fascinating, part of what it's saying here is that noble people elevate the people around them, you know. There's nothing noble about putting somebody down, you know, putting them in their place, you know, this sort of thing. A quote from Confucius, this is kind of a loose paraphrase of something he said in the Analects. 
There are three methods by which we learn wisdom. The first by reflection, which is the noblest. The second by imitation, which is the easiest. The third by experience, which is the bitterest. A quote from Mencius or Mengza. Mengza is, he's kind of the number two guy in the Confucian tradition. Sometimes he's called the second sage after Confucius himself. And he says, if we wish to know whether anyone is noble or not, we need only observe what part of his being he regards as worth cultivating. The human psyche has superior and inferior noble and ignoble places. We must not neglect the noble places for the sake of the ignoble, nor must we neglect the superior places for the sake of the inferior. He who cultivates the ignoble places of his nature is an ignoble man. He who cultivates the noble places of his nature is a noble man. You know, and so just a fascinating question. At any point, what are the sides of us that we're, we're actually feeding? Then a, a famous prayer from Ignatius of Loyola. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek the rest, to labor and not ask for reward, except to know that I am doing your will. So, tremendous nobility in that sentiment. Socrates said, One should never do wrong in return, nor mistreat any man, no matter how one has been mistreated by him. Plutarch said, It is part of a good man to do great and noble things, even though he risks everything. The emperor Marcus Aurelius said, A noble man compares and estimates himself by an idea which is higher than himself, and a mean man by one that is lower than himself. The one produces aspiration, the other ambition which is the way in which a vulgar man aspires. Very interesting, aspiration versus ambition. The poet Ali Shir Naivi said, the noble man remembers nothing good he did for others. So in other words, this, this idea of you do good for others and then you completely forget about it. You, you don't hold it over anyone's head for credit, you know. Edmund Spencer said, the noblest mind the best contentment has. Goethe said, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. Nietzsche said, the noble man honors in himself the powerful one, him who also has power over himself, who knows how to speak and keep the silence, who takes pleasure in subjecting himself to severity and hardness and has reverence for all that is severe and hard. That's an intense one. William Steckel said, the mark of an immature man is that he wants to die for a noble cause, while the mark of a mature man is that he wants to live for a humble one. Richard Wilhelm said, when a person has learned within their heart what fear and trembling mean, they are safeguarded against any terrors produced by outside influences. 
This is the spirit that must animate all leaders, a profound inner seriousness from which all outer terrors glance off harmlessly. Juan Ramon Jimenez said, a permanent state of transition is man's most noble condition. Jose Ortega y Gasset said, Nobility is defined by the demands it makes on us, by the obligations, not the rights. Noblesse oblige. To live as one likes is a plebeian. The noble man aspires to law and order. D.H. Lawrence said, The only true aristocracy is that of consciousness. I'll read the T.S. Eliot again because it's such a deep quote. The rending pain of reenactment of all you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then fools' approval stings and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. Dale Carnegie said, Any fool can try to defend his or her mistakes, and most fools do, but it takes one above the herd and gives one a feeling of nobility and exultation to admit one's mistakes. Lin Yutang said, Besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. This is the wisdom of life. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. Elton Trueblood said, It takes a noble man to plant a seed for a tree that will someday give shade to people he may never meet. The poet Octavio Paz said, This is perhaps the most noble aim of poetry, to attach ourselves to the world around us, to turn our desire into love, and to embrace finally what always evades us, what is beyond, but what is always there, the unspoken, the spirit, the soul. Leonard Cohen said, Roshi said something nice to me once. He said that the older you get, the lonelier you become, and and the deeper you need love. Which means that this hero that you're trying to maintain as the central figure in the drama of your life, your hero is not enjoying the life of a hero. You're exerting tremendous maintenance to keep this heroic stance available to you, and the hero is is suffering defeat after defeat. And they're not heroic defeats, they're ennoble defeats. Finally, one day you say, let him die. I can't invest any more in this heroic position. From there, you just live your life as if it's real. And as you have to make decisions, even though you have absolutely no guarantee of any of the consequences of your decisions. Susie Cassim said, selflessness, humility, truthfulness. These are the three marks of an honorable man. That's an awfully nice trilogy she identifies. Andy Wilson said, To love is to be selfless. To be selfless is to be fearless. To be fearless is to strip your enemies of their greatest weapon. Even if they break our bodies and drain our blood, we are unvanquished. Our goal was never to live. Our goal is to love. It is the goal of all truly noble men and women. Give all that can be given. Give even your life itself. 
Giannis Delimitsos said, Speaking with courtesy and respect, you are offering a wonderful gift to yourself, a useful embarrassment to the unkind, and a good example to bystanders. <coughs> and the last word goes to Yogi Teas. This is a message on one of their tea bags. Noble language and behavior are so powerful that hearts can melt or hearts are melted.